G'day world, you're listening to Cameron Riley on the Podcast Network. It's May 31st, 2007. My guest today on the show, one of the founding fathers of the internet for his work with Bob Kahn in 1973 and since then on TCPIP, on ICANN, many other things, too numerous to mention in this introduction. Mr. Vint Cerf, welcome to the show, sir. Hi, Cameron. It's a pleasure to be on. Sir, it is a real honour to have you on. Now, in your current role as Vice President and Chief Internet Evangelist at Google, I thought we might start by getting you to explain a little bit to the audience about what that means. What what does the Chief Internet Evangelist do at a company like Google? <laughs> well, I have to tell you, originally, when uh, they asked me what title did I want, I suggested Archduke uh, because it <laughs> sounded cool. Very cool. Uh, yeah, but then somebody pointed out that the last Archduke was Ferdinand, and he was assassinated in 1914, and it started, started World War One. So I thought, well, okay, maybe we should steer clear of that title. <laughs> um, but uh, Larry and Eric and Sergey came back and said, well, you know, considering what you've been doing for the last 35 years, uh, Chief Internet Evangelist sounded like a pretty good uh, alternative. It's, it's a work in progress, but it has a number of components. Uh, I spend time at universities... Uh, telling uh, the computer science departments uh, problems that are unsolved that we would love to see them uh, cope with. Uh, I certainly spend time doing some recruiting for the company, uh, especially on university campuses. I help the, the company with policy development, especially um, what let me call it national and international policy regarding uh, internet applications and internet governance. Um, I have some, uh, an opportunity to visit all of the uh, Google engineering offices around the world, and in that role, uh, I, I think of myself as an intellectual bumblebee, uh, learning what's going on at each of the offices, sharing some of the ideas as I move around, hoping uh, to pollinate to thinking uh, here and there. Uh, I spend time uh, as a public uh, uh, face for the company doing things like this interview and, and others with uh, other parts of the media. Uh, and I get a fair number of uh, requests from people who have technology or companies that they think Google might be interested in. So part of my job is to try to hook them up with the appropriate parties within our burgeoning uh, Google uh, employment base. I mean, we must have 12, over 12,000 people now in the company a great many of them outside the United States. So that's a, a kind of an amalgam of the things that I spend time on. Uh, the company has also been kind enough to let me uh, continue my activities at ICANN as chairman there and also uh, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory on the uh, interplanetary extension of the Internet. So that's a summary of all the stuff that uh, I get to do at Google. It sounds like a fun job, but I have to ask you, which job has been the most fun, this one or being special technical advisor to Gene Roddenberry's Earth Final Conflict? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question. I think from the intellectual stimulation point of view, the Google job uh, wins hands down. But uh, I have to admit that it was a great, uh, just great fun interacting with a lot of the people and uh, Major Roddenberry especially, uh, who was one of the executive producers of, uh, of that show. Uh, and even being on the show once uh, was an interesting experience. So I enjoyed it very much. But Google, of course, is much more substantive. Now, I know that uh, you, you are very humble in terms of 
the amount of credit that you and, and Bob Kahn, your uh, partner, your, your collaborator in developing TCIPR in terms of your roles of founding father of the internet. But, you know, it's, it's true to say that yourself and Bob played a, an incredibly significant role in making all of this come together over the last 30 years. But when I've been telling friends and colleagues over the last couple of weeks that we were going to have you on the show, vast majority of people don't know the name and still think that Al Gore invented the internet. <laughs> well, now, even Al, even Al knows he hadn't invented the internet. <laughs> no, I was, uh, but, I, I was but, actually but, reading yeah. you giving him a lot of credit. I read an email that you wrote back in 2000 on the subject of Al Gore and his role as the first political leader to really recognize the importance of the internet and to support it. That's absolutely true, and I, I still give him credit for that. He's now become a good friend, actually. Uh, Al really took some very explicit steps while he was a senator uh, to pursue the whole question of networking and supercomputing. Uh, he helped to, uh, to uh, supply resources uh, to the National Science Foundation for what was called uh, the Next Generation Internet Project. And on top of that, as vice president, he helped to uh, shepherd legislation uh, through both houses of Congress that allowed commercial use of the internet, uh, government-sponsored internet backbone, which effectively created a market. It demonstrated a market uh, for, uh, for internet service and stimulated commercial access for the general public. So uh, he does deserve a considerable amount of credit for his role. Uh, in making the uh, the internet available to a, a large segment of the population. I have to ask you, back in 1973, when you guys sat down and were working on developing the internet working protocol, did you have any idea what this was going to become over the next 30 years? I mean, I've had the opportunity... I've been fortunate enough to have the opportunity to meet Bill Gates on a number of occasions and Rupert Murdoch, and I know in talking to those guys that... They really didn't have any idea when they set out what they were going to end up building. It was sort of walk a mile, see a mile in their cases. Did you guys understand how big an impact this was going to have on the world back in 1973? Well, I, you know, I really would like to say yes and no. Uh, let me try to say why. Uh, remember that by 1973, we had four years of experience with the ARPANET, which was the first reasonably large-scale packet switch network. Uh, ever to be built. And in that period of time, and actually even a bit before that, uh, certain applications were already uh, available uh, in a time-sharing environment. So, for example, Douglas Engelbart had uh, already built his online system mm -hmm. that uh, really uh, looked a great deal like what we use today. He invented the mouse, he invented the uh, portrait mode display, he invented black-on-white presentation as opposed to the you know, traditional yellow-on-green. Um, he was uh, invented the notion of hyperlinking. Uh, all of this was contained in the NLS system. We then put that on the ARPANET and had uh, remote access to it through the ARPANET. And then when the Internet came along, all of that was translated over. Uh, email had been invented in 1971, uh, so we already knew what kind of application that was. So, in a sense, the community that Bob and I uh, worked with uh, had some pretty strong uh, appreciation for what could be done. And then, of course, uh, Xerox PARC was operating in that same general time frame in 1972-73, and uh, Bob Metcalf and uh, David Boggs invented the uh, Ethernet. 
which ultimately spawned, of course, a huge collection of networks uh, that you know were enterprise in scale or, or perhaps even smaller, uh, and those proliferated very, very quickly. Uh, of course, uh, Xerox did some pretty amazing things with its own uh, uh, personal computers. They were called Altos at the time. And the Bravo text editor, which um, uh, Charles Simone did, uh, was a prototype or a predecessor of a great many of the text editors that we use today, which, which have a WYSIWYG appearance to them. So on the yes side, I think Bob and I saw what was already possible and believed that more of it could be um, accomplished if we allowed a much more flexible networking environment to evolve. Uh, so we created the conditions under which uh, the proliferation of networking uh, could be considered by creating rules that allowed anyone to join the internet if you just followed the appropriate protocols. Uh, I don't think that either of us anticipated that it would become essentially the 21st century infrastructure for telecommunications uh, and I believe that it is rapidly becoming so. And some of the applications like the World Wide Web were foreshadowed by Engelbart's NLS system but the the uh, amount of information and the fact that the general public can both produce it and access it uh, was not part of my model anyway because I didn't understand at the time what would happen when a billion people uh, could get on the net. Because when we were doing this work, we weren't expecting that many people would have access to it. Well, I guess that's a great sign. And I know you've been uh, working on IP version 6 now for well over a decade in order to create uh, a lot more address space for the internet. How's the adoption of IPv6 coming along at this stage? It, frankly, it's been rather slow. In fact, one of your colleagues, Jeff, uh, Jeff Houston, uh, has been quite uh, vocal recently uh, calling attention to the fact that the IPv4 address space, which is what mostly everyone is using, is, uh, is going to run out within the next several years. So uh, it doesn't mean the net will stop, but it does mean that it will be hard to add new pieces to it um, unless everyone moves over to the uh, larger address space. So uh, with many hats on, and my ICANN hat on, my uh, former Internet Society hat on, and my Google hat on, um, I've been encouraging people to get serious about uh, int introducing IP version 6. Uh, the real stumbling block right now seems to be convincing the internet service providers that it is in their best interest and in the best interest of their customers to have IPv6 available. Uh, most of the uh, uh, software vendors, uh, people who make operating systems and the like, have already introduced IPv6 capability, so have the router companies, it's just that it all hasn't been brought together. I think there will be substantial pressure uh, in the internet community to move to IPv6, especially as the runout dates uh, get closer, which are now estimated to be somewhere in the 2000, uh, as early as 2009 and possibly a bit later to 2011. Um, that is not very long from now, and people really, really should be thinking hard about preparing for operation in both the v4 and v6 address space. You know, if you want people to really take it seriously, you should get Al Gore to make a film about it. <laughs> well, there's a thought, or maybe I should make a film about it or something. <laughs> My understanding is that IPv4 allows for 4.3 billion addresses, but v6 will allow for 340 billion, 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 billion addresses. Is that enough, do you think? 
Well, let me see. First of all, I have to do the math to make. Yes, I think you're right. That's <laughs> ten to the thirty. That's three hundred and forty trillion 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 is the same as three hundred and forty billion 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 billion. So that's correct. I'm glad you know. Uh, I hope that it's enough. Uh, at least it should be enough to last until after I'm dead, and then it's somebody else's problem. <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah, I've had uh, chaps like Ray Kurzweil on the show over the last year and Aubrey de Grey uh, saying that people don't have to die. You, you know those guys quite well, don't you? I think oh, you've... oh, yes. Well, uh, I'm thinking about uh, uh, Ray, um, oh gosh, the, the, the chap who just wrote this wonderful book called uh, The Singularity is Near. Ray Kurzweil, uh, yeah. Uh, Ray Kurzweil, right. Uh, you're right. He, uh, he has an idea that we may be able to... Uh, download ourselves or upload ourselves into a piece of hardware and last forever, which would be kind of interesting, I think. We need enough IP addresses for uh, every memory. Uh, well, uh, if we do that, we probably don't need to have an IP address for every memory, thank goodness. Uh, if the IP address is sort of a, an I.O. port uh, for moving things in and out of memory, then every address uh, inside is, uh, is separate from that. Let's let's move on then and talk about the interplanetary internet. You've been working on this for quite a while with uh, Jet Propulsion Labs. My understanding is the basic uh, problem that you're trying to solve is how we can move more information from Earth to different spacecraft and to Mars. I want to just be very clear about this, though. This isn't just so astronauts on a three-year trip to Mars can get access to porn on the way, is it? Yeah, I hope not. Uh, of course, we don't know too much about alien porn yet, so I'm not sure what that's likely to, to look like. Well, well everybody, fact, knows, have... everybody knows that the Internet was all about porn and gaming. That's what I get told all the time. So well, I, I suppose so, but then I don't, I'm not sure we'd even be able to recognize alien porn if we saw it. <laughs> um, the real uh, motivation behind the interplanetary Internet extension is basically to uh, create some standards for deep space communication it was motivated initially by uh, an expectation that there would be a larger number of uh, spacecraft in operation over time and that the current set of protocols and operating procedures uh, that use the deep space network at JPL um, would not be able to scale uh, to meet the demand. Uh, moreover, uh, we believe that, uh, that radio connectivity is, is often fragile in, uh, in deep space operations, even celestial motion, for example, causes you to lose radio contact because of the rotation of planets and, and satellites. So um, we wanted to create enough standards uh, so that we could get the same kind of advantage that we've had uh, on planet Earth with TCPIP. Notably that uh, whenever uh, you uh, implement those standards, then any pre-existing resources which could be repurposed could support new missions. So when you launch a new mission to, uh, you know, uh, Uranus or Neptune or Saturn or something, if there are uh, uh, pre-existing missions whose resources are still available and still operating, they can be repurposed to support the new mission because of the standards. Uh, we have a small instance of that already uh, on Mars, where there are four orbiters, three of which are operational. Uh, those orbiters, some of them anyway, have been reprogrammed uh, to take data from the surface, from the two rovers that are on the ground that were landed in early 2004, uh, capture the data and then relay it uh, in store and forward fashion to the Deep Space Network, uh, to JPL for, for, for further processing. 
that wasn't the original plan. The original design had a direct transmission from the rover back to Earth, but for a variety of reasons that turned out not to be effective. And so the uh, reprogramming of the uh, of the orbiters around Mars has allowed a substantially larger amount of data capture to occur, and of course commands to be sent uh, up uh, back to the rovers. So what we're trying to do is to standardize all of that so that uh, it's always possible to um, augment uh, in a, a new mission with existing resources. Have you found any way to speed up the transmission of data over these long distances? You have found a way to shoot these messages faster than the speed of speed of light yet? Well, we haven't been able to find any way to increase the propagation speed because Mr. Einstein tells us that uh, that's unlikely. However, uh, there's been a lot of work looking at different ways of speeding up the rate at which the data can be transmitted. Uh, at one point, uh, we were planning on an experiment with a laser uh, uh, on a Mars orbiter that, uh, that might allow us to increase the data rates from uh, perhaps uh, hundreds of kilobits a second to hundreds of megabits per second. That would be a very significant increase in, uh, in uh, the ability to recover data from various uh, experiments on the uh, plat space platforms. Uh, that program got either scrubbed or postponed, I forget which. So we're still some ways away from being able to put lasers in space, but I hope that we... Uh, can accomplish that during the uh, second decade of the 21st century because it would vastly improve our ability to move data from the uh, sensor systems uh, back to planet Earth for analysis. It certainly seems like we're moving into an era of more privately funded space travel. You mentioned Charles Simony earlier on. Obviously, he's just been up, I think, on uh, one of Branson's ships or... Uh, might have been no, no, he was, he was launched out of uh, Chiratam in Russia, uh, oh, that's uh, right. Uh, to the uh, International Space Station, and then it came back down again that way. Uh, I happen to know Charles uh, from his early days at Xerox Park. Of course, he's been a very, very successful entrepreneur, uh, having moved now from Microsoft to his own software company. Uh, and I know he's a big, uh, a big fan of uh, private uh, space initiatives. Uh, so I hope we'll see more uh, along those lines as time goes on. Have you got a desire to go up there yourself and uh, test some of these routers that you're building? Well, at age 64, I'm not sure that I would be uh, well-equipped to do that. Charles is probably in much better shape than I am. Uh, so I, I may have to be content with uh, staying on the ground and wishing everyone well. Uh, I have to admit, as a childhood fantasy, it was often uh, I wondered whether it would ever be possible to make it into space. I understand you're a bit of a Star Trek fan. Um, not not just Star Trek. I'm a huge science fiction fan in general. Uh, so uh, I've enjoyed uh, reading uh, stories about the future since I was about 10 years old. I did a show yesterday with a gentleman who's running the first uh, cable news network inside of Second Life. And, you know, I, when I go back and remember the, the cyberpunk books by Gibson and Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, these sorts of books over the 80s and 90s, how close do you think we are to creating these fully immersive virtual environments? Is that something that you get excited about? Well, uh, I actually am quite excited about them. Uh, I'm fascinated, of course, by the sociology of it, and as people are now beginning to study the economics as well as the social structures that are evolving. Uh, Google is even quite interested in the possibility of advertising in these uh, uh, virtual environments. 
so I'm I'm interested in uh, how they are evolving. Uh, it's actually it's first I I had heard that someone was actually planning to do a, a cable news show inside of one of these uh, virtual environments. I can say that um, immersion. Uh, is going to be very interesting. I've, I've seen some very powerful immersive video conferencing tools. Uh, one of them was demonstrated recently at uh, Cisco Systems. Uh, the figures are life size and they're real. I mean, you, it's not uh, you're not seeing um, uh, avatars. You're seeing real people. But the fact that they're life size is what makes it so realistic. Uh, it, you feel as if you're having a conversation with someone across the table, and I've not tried doing that with an avatar, but I suspect it would have a similar kind of immersive feel to it. Uh, the real problem, I think, is dealing with um, uh, all of the uh, the kind of visual effects that you get if you're in a real-world setting, uh, including peripheral vision and everything else. If, if you've been to an IMAX uh, film, you know the uh, the sense of being immersed uh, so much so that uh, some people get motion sickness because mm. their bodies are, their eyes are telling them one thing and their bodies are telling them something else. Uh, so I actually believe that we will see an increase in immersive uh, communications technology as time goes on. It will become more common for people to interact in a life-size way in these uh, virtual environments. I want to talk to you a little bit about network neutrality. I know that you spoke in front of the congressional hearings on behalf of Google. I haven't heard a lot about where we're up to with net neutrality in the United States in the last couple of months. Uh, now, you obviously have a fairly unique perspective on this because of your role in developing the internet. And I know that you're a supporter of network neutrality. Can you give us your impressions of what the current state of play is there? Uh, well, several things have happened in the last uh, six months. Uh, one of them, of course, is that the American uh, midterm elections occurred and there was a change of leadership uh, in the House of Representatives and the Senate uh, going from the Republican side to the Democratic side. That put people uh, in chairmanship positions who had been there in the past and are now uh, there again. Uh, there, right now the subject has has been relatively quiet. Uh, the FCC, uh, Federal Communications Commission, is focused right now on the 700 megahertz spectrum allocation question. This is moving from analog TV to digital, freeing up some very important spectral space. And so that's been a major focus of attention. Uh, I think that uh, we continue to believe at Google that uh, what is important here is to make sure that users have uh, a fair experience with regard to uh, access to the world's internet services, regardless of uh, which broadband provider they happen to uh, to go to. Uh, so we still harbor a certain amount of uh, concern that the broadband providers uh, might be inclined to uh, uh, favor some uh, servers, some services, uh, network-based services, over others, and we think that would not be uh, in the best interest of consumers. Uh, I think that at the moment, I don't think that I. I see much legislation, legislative action uh, in the U.S. Uh, Congress, uh, but after the uh, 700 megahertz spectrum is over with, uh, perhaps we'll see an, a renewed attention to that. Uh, certainly, we're paying close attention to uh, any of the bills that, uh, that either have been or may be introduced that have bearing on this question of uh, uh, freedom of choice and open access to network services. 
if you had to make a judgment call on which direction it's going to go down based on your knowledge of the the people involved and your experience, would you say that uh, it's going to stay neutral or legislation will get in, introduced? Well, I believe that uh, one possible outcome, and this is only one of, of many, of course, uh, one is that nothing will happen. Uh, uh, one which I would favor would be to have legislation which it at least places uh, principles in law that say that open access uh, and uh, you know, freedom of choice for users to get to uh, any and all services around the Internet uh, should be codified. Uh, as you dive deeper into um, attempting to regulate uh, and put regulatory uh, language into place, it gets much more complicated. Uh, there are all kinds of reasons why one would not treat every single packet in the network exactly identically. I mean, some of them may be high priority control traffic. Some of it might be uh, uh, malware, spam, or, or uh, denial of service attack traffic, in which you'd want to be able to discard that uh, preferentially. So, uh, one of much of the debate, uh, the surrounding network neutrality arguments, has not been against the basic principles, but rather a worry that any specific uh, legal framework uh, might inhibit uh, protections that users are interested in against various forms of abuse. Uh, and so there's a balance here between protecting users and also guaranteeing that they have uh, equal access, in effect, to any and all services on the Internet. You know, I'm sure that there's a lot of us out here hoping that Google just becomes the global ISP and uh, takes takes the control away from the telcos and evil ISPs all around the world. Uh, are you going to make that happen for us? Well, actually, I'm not sure that I would characterize the ISPs as uniformly evil. Um, I've had, you know, I'm sure as you've had, your own uh, sets of uh, debates and disputes or, or uh, discussions, anyhow, with various of the uh, Internet service providers uh, in Australia. Uh, I think, however, that Google's primary business model has tended to be uh, application-based, network application-based services as opposed to physical infrastructure. Uh, we clearly have a big physical infrastructure that we've had to construct in order to support all the computing that's required to deliver Google-based services. Uh, but building uh, a kind of global backbone for everyone to access uh, is, is, doesn't strike me as being a likely uh, model that we would follow, although we're certainly very, very eager to um, stimulate the construction of more internet because, as you know, only a billion users are online now and we think we'd all like to see six and a half billion people online all around the world and to do that uh, requires that there be a lot more internet built uh, and economic models have to be in place that will permit the investment that's needed to make that happen. Well, we live in hope that uh, Google and yourself, sir, can uh, rise up and provide us all with lots more internet. Uh, Google's a fabulous company. And I think on behalf of the human race, I, and again, I know you're very humble about your role, but do you ever wake up and go, my gosh, I changed the world in my lifetime? <laughs> Well, I think really I, I don't get up and think that, but I do I do get up and think that the world has changed uh, dramatically, uh, and in my view, largely uh, for the better, at least as far as access to information goes. Uh, it's the sharing of information which has been the big surprise for me. I I've, I've been quite 
astonished and impressed that people are willing to work very hard in order to produce and share uh, their knowledge. Uh, and setting aside all of the abuses and the, you know, the bad stuff that's on the net and the misinformation and everything else, uh, it's been a stunningly uh, productive uh, environment uh, in which people can work and share what they know. Uh, and to the extent that I've had a role to play in that, uh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, my, the best analogy I can give you is that it feels more like uh, the guy that figured out how to build the highways and suggest rules for their use and that everyone build whatever automobiles or vehicles they wanted on, to go on the highways and all of the buildings that go at the edges uh, that take advantage of the fact that there are people riding around in the cars. Uh, so I'm really happy that, uh, that Bob and I were able to do something that so many people could uh, make use of. Uh, it's more a question of enabling uh, creativity uh, than anything else. And if anything gives me great pleasure, it's knowing that other people have been able to take this basic infrastructure and turn it into some extraordinarily useful things. If you could go back 35 years and talk to a young Vince Cerf in 1972, 1973, any, any words of advice you would give him? Uh, several. Uh, first of all, I would say that uh, you can accomplish uh, a great deal if you don't care who gets the credit. <laughs> uh, second, that there is creativity everywhere and that uh, no one has a corner on it and you should always be aware of that. You should try to do things that take advantage of enabling other people's ideas uh, to, uh, to flourish. Uh, and finally, uh, I think that it's very important to recognize that uh, you can learn something from everyone and that respect for that is a very important rule to follow uh, if you want to have an enjoyable, interesting, and educational life. No regrets that you didn't uh, trademark or patent TCPIP? No, not at all. And part of the reason for that is that uh, patenting of the technology would actually have uh, inhibited its adoption. Uh, I don't believe we would have an internet based on this technology if Bob and I had tried to bottle it up. Now, we even have a, a counterexample uh, that shows that that would have been a problem. Xerox PARC had developed what it called the PARC Universal Packet and later the uh, Xerox Network Service or System, XNS, but they made it very proprietary and they didn't share it with the rest of the world uh, for what they thought were good business reasons. Bob and I viewed the uh, Internet design as something that needed to be openly standardized and uh, for that reason we chose very, very deliberately not to try to protect it in any way. Uh, and I think that the outcome uh, is very clear that it, the open sharing of the design and architecture and technology is exactly what was needed in order to make it possible to standardize on a global basis. So I've got one last question for you. I know we're out of time. I wanted to ask you about ICANN. Have I got time for one more? Yes, you do. Thank you, sir. Now, I know that you've recently announced that you're going to step down from your role as chairman of the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, ICANN, later on this year. Many people probably don't have a good idea of just what ICANN does. Can you give us a brief description and then explain the sorts of people you would like to see getting involved in ICANN moving forwards? I'd be happy to. Uh, first of all, um I'm not stepping down uh, exactly voluntarily. It's not that I'm unhappy about stepping down, but the, uh, the bylaws require that I relinquish my position on the board after having served for uh, three terms. 
So uh, this is a, a bylaw uh, requirement. Uh, you're, like that the, I, uh, you're the FDR of down. ICANN. Uh, <laughs> that's right. So when when we did a kind of redesign of, of ICANN's uh, operating policies and practices, we put in term limits. And so all that's happening here is that my terms have ended. Uh, in terms of what the company does, uh, it is responsible for uh, overseeing and coordinating uh, the uh, unique parameters associated with the Internet. So, for example, address space needs to be assigned and allocated in a unique way. And uh, ICANN works with the regional Internet registries to assure that's the case. Similarly, with regard to domain names, uh, we oversee the domain name system. Uh, in order to make sure that uh, the same domain name isn't assigned to more than one person. Uh, we also have a kind of secretarial role because uh, the Internet Engineering Task Force, uh, when it creates standards, often creates tables of parameters that have to be standardized, and we maintain those tables so that uh, people who need reference to them for implementation purposes have one place to go where the data is uh, uniformly uh, kept. Uh, of course, uh, Internet is a lot more complicated than those basic functions. Uh, we have a responsibility for helping to develop policy for the use of and the, and the uh, uh, implementation of the domain name system uh, for the uh, allocation and use of IPv6 and IPv4 addresses and so on. Policymaking role is quite complex, and it involves a number of different constituencies that make up the ICANN community. Uh, to, uh, to skip to the latter part of your question about the kinds of people that I hope will be persuaded to serve on the board, for example, or in other uh, significant uh, capacities in the supporting organizations, uh, we need people with technical understanding of the Internet, with business experience, with uh, serving on boards of various kinds, particularly for nonprofits, uh, who have a world view, a uh, global view, as opposed to a parochial one, because Internet is, uh, is nothing but if it's not considered international. Uh, we need people with experience serving on boards, uh, particularly on nonprofits. Uh, and uh, it's turning out to be uh, not so simple to find people who are prepared to make the time commitments needed in order to be a, a, a well-functioning uh, board member. Uh, so I appreciate the opportunity to advertise uh, a little bit on your show. Uh, to, uh, to say that uh, we are always looking for well-qualified people uh, from the Internet community and even outside it uh, to serve on our board. Do, do these people need to be in any particular geography or can they participate virtually somehow? Well, essentially, uh, anyone can participate uh, in ICANN activities anywhere. They can come to the meetings or they can work online, uh, thanks to uh, one of our employees, Kieran McCarthy, who's created a very... Uh, uh, effective uh, public policy participation, online participation uh, site. Uh, we do have some geographic requirements that the board span uh, the globe uh, in five geographic regions, uh, and we try very hard to make sure that, uh, that any sitting board uh, uh, covers the, the globe uh, with representatives from each of those regions. Well, sir, I know we're out of time. Thank you so much for your generosity coming on the show today. And quite seriously, on behalf of the human race and the alien races who are just waiting to get their broadband porn, <laughs> can I say uh, thank you for everything you've done over the last 35 years in, in helping make the internet what it is today. I mean, it, from where I sit, it is an outstanding 
contribution to the human race. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you for that, Cameron. Just remind yourself and others who are on the show or listening to the show that uh, anything of this magnitude only happens because enormous numbers of people want it to happen and are willing to commit time and energy and money, careers, uh, to, to make it happen. And so if it's exciting at all, it's because so many people have decided that they want it to happen and they participated and contributed to it. All the very best, Mr. Surf. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye for now, Cameron. Hi, this is Cameron. Just a quick message before the show starts, letting you know that the G'day World comments line is now open. Listeners in Australia can ring the following number to leave a comment about the show. It's 03 That number again, 03 9016 9699.